Good morning, North Boulevard. Thanks for joining us. Those of you who are here, nice crowd here, and those of you online, we're really, really glad that you're with us. Already an awesome day. Man, the, uh, we're, like we're, I'm not supposed to say too much, but it feels like some kind of rebound for good is occurring right now. That's all I'll say. But man, God's good all the time. That's right. So somebody else do this. I'm not, I'm not getting it quite right. Um, hey, how about, how about our boy David Hunziker? Is he not doing a great job? Um, so uh, several months ago, the elders and I and several others began working on some projects that we hope will help us uh, kind of steer into the future as a congregation. And I said to the elders, I need somebody else really to take about one out of every four sermons. David's been leading the West Campus. He's doing a phenomenal job. He's only 31 years old. I think I'm right on that. Like, he's, he's just dynamite, all packed into... And he scores high on every card, too. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm grateful that David is uh, partnering with me on this series. He did a fantastic job last Sunday, and uh, he'll be back up on a couple of weeks, I think, uh, maybe, maybe soon. Anyway, so... Um, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, the New Testament scholar, said that there are four echoes of the voice of God that ring in the heart of every person, four echoes of the voice of God. There's a quest for spirituality, a hunger for relationships, a delight in beauty, and a longing for justice. Justice. You know, the concept of justice alone is a simple concept. Justice simply means everyone gets what he or she deserves. What's owed to them? What is theirs already by right? But when you begin to exercise justice, it becomes an incredibly complicated thing. Just think of some of the questions that come with justice. Here's one. Is it just for 20% of the people to own 80% of the wealth? Would it be just if they earned it? Is it just to discriminate against anybody or are there circumstances where we really must discriminate against some people? Is it just to blame an individual for their actions when the whole system is broken? Or is it just to excuse an individual for their actions just because the system is broken? What does justice look like between a husband and a wife or parents? and children? What are just wages in an industrialized nation? Is there ever a time for reparations when injustice has occurred? Who gets to define justice? What is justice, in fact, in an industrial nation? Well, there's an old English proverb that says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I'd like to preach a sermon on justice. And I'm keenly aware of the fact that I'm not qualified to do much on the subject of justice. I'm aware of the fact that we have brilliant attorneys at North Boulevard. We have not one, two, three, four, but five judges who are members at North Boulevard. 
uh, all of whom know infinitely more about justice than I will ever know. And so I feel a little pretentious even talking about it, but God chose the text, and the text is about justice, and I have to do something with it. So you're going to have to endure me taking a probe here or there at the biblical subject of justice. The most I think I can hope for in a lesson like this is just to underline a few biblical principles. I can't I really am not qualified to give us a whole system of justice, but I can underline a few biblical principles, and then I can do this. I can challenge you to treat other people rightly and with mercy. So, God is a just God. That's taught all through Scripture. It is such good news to know that God is just, because it means that even when bad things happen to you, there's a judge who saw it, and he's going to make it right. So we have a text like this at the end of Deuteronomy. He's a rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. He's faithful. He does no wrong. He's upright and he is just. And our world desperately needs to see people who both teach and model justice. And we are that people. So let's look at the book of Deuteronomy. We'll start at the end of chapter 16, verse 18. We're going to work through several verses, and I want you to see the whole chapter, even though it takes forays into idolatry and the Levitical priesthood, it's still all about justice. That's what this text is about, is justice. So let's start by reading a few verses. We'll make some comments, and I'm going to draw some lessons out of it. Uh, chapter 16, and verse 18, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So God is deeply concerned about justice. And one reason why God is concerned about justice is that justice really is the fundamental virtue upon which all other virtues are built. If you get justice wrong, nothing else is going to work. Now, I want to just pause and say that as I was preparing for the lesson, one thing that struck me, and it struck me before, but it struck me again really hard this week, is how little I heard about justice growing up. Like, I don't think I can remember a single sermon on justice when I was growing up. And I thought about that. The church that raised me, like, I love the Smyrna Church of Christ. Like, it, even before that, it was a Rural Hill Church in South Nashville. Both of them, they did, I love them to death. They loved me. I, I'm, I'm only today who I am because of the love they gave me. So I'm not being critical. But I just wonder, why did we never talk about justice? Why was that never preached on in my churches? And maybe it was, and I was asleep. But actually, I think I know why. I think that because we were, in both cases, predominantly white churches who were largely always the winners in the justice system, we never thought much about justice. There's an old saying, you only think about justice when you're treated unjustly. And I'm pretty sure that in most African-American churches, justice is talked about regularly because it needs to be talked about because so many African-Americans have had to deal with for centuries injustice. And I do think it's probably a difficult subject for a lot of us. Let me tell you, let me confess to you a feeling I have with this sermon. I'm, I'm going to be as transparent as I can be. Because I wrestle with this sermon all week. I ask God to remove this from me, let somebody else preach, let me get sick, anything. Because I'm, I'm anxious about the lesson. And I want to tell you one of the feelings I have. 
So again, we're not going to talk about race the whole time. We want to talk about it a little bit, but justice is much bigger than that. But it, that's also a glaring example. So we need to talk about it. As a white guy, when you talk about justice, I feel like I'm losing something. Like it scares me that I might have to lose something. Now, maybe nobody else feels that. But when I think that and I realize, I reflect on that, it dawns on me, that's a real problem. If I'm afraid of the concept of justice because I might lose something, that's a sign that I'm probably not a very just person. Because at the end of the day, justice is a matter of everybody winning or nobody wins. If anybody loses in a justice system, everybody loses. And so God starts this text out by saying, I want you to be impartial in justice. I want a justice system in place, and I want the justice system to be scattered throughout the country. I'll give you a quick illustration. This is the old city of Dan. These are the actual walls from the 11th century before Christ. And right outside the walls was a bench, and this is where the elders of the city would go and sit, and they would conduct court. In the year 2000, 20 years or so ago, seven elders were visiting Israel with me, and we had them sit on the seats here to exercise justice. Didn't need a whole lot on that particular trip. As you can see, they were not very interested in justice. But nonetheless, this is an illustration of how the justice system was arranged in ancient Israel. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you're to build to the Lord your God, and do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. Now, you may wonder, what does idolatry have to do with justice? And the answer is everything, because justice is grounded in the very character of God. And if you have the wrong God, you will never practice real justice. Like, everybody get that? We have to say that. Wrong God equals injustice. And so when he's talking about justice, he immediately has to say, make sure you're worshiping the right God or you will not get justice. Now, here's a fascinating thing. These are the walls, the gates of the city of Bethsaida. So this was from the same time as the last picture you just saw, the 11th century before Christ, 3,000 years ago. What I want you to see is in Israel's day, they actually had a Baal statue sitting at their gate. It's still sitting there 3,000 years later. Which is one reason why the city's in ruins, because God says you will collapse of injustice if you worship the wrong God. Now, look at this image. This is the same gate. Here's the same stone. This is where the elders' bench was. I want you to see that though God said, do not worship any idols, right next to the elders' bench, these guys erected an idol. The three elders from three different churches here. So what he wants us to understand is that if you don't have the right view of God, you will never achieve justice. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. Let's keep reading verse 1, chapter 17. Do not sacrifice of the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. God's all, all God's saying here is this. I deserve justice because I'm the one who created you. I don't want any defect being given to me. You give me the best. God too deserves justice to be treated justly. If a man or a woman living among you in one of your towns, the Lord gives you, is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant and contrary to my command has worshiped other gods, bowing down to them or the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky. And this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. So I want to pause. God is not only concerned with just outcomes. He's also concerned with just procedures. And you'll see that in this text. First, you have to investigate. Like we don't react to things. First, we start by getting the facts. We do a thorough investigation. So he says, if you find out, if you hear a rumor that somebody is worshiping an idol, I want you to investigate the facts. You don't go out there as a mob. 
There's a, such a thing as due procedure. And this is what God is articulating in this text. Then he says, if it's true, if it's been proved that it's true, this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who's done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. Just remind you again, the wrong God is injustice. So God is very jealous about who we worship. And just make sure we get this. This is one of your blanks, by the way. Idolatry always perverts justice. This was what went wrong in Canaan. They were worshiping the wrong gods, and that led them to live unjust lives. Think about it. So, Molech, uh, this, uh, this reprehensible god of the Ammonites, Molech actually required child sacrifice. And so, people killed babies a reprehensible injustice, but it was because they were idolaters. The same is true with Baal and Asherah. Baal married his sister. He had all kinds of perverse sexual acts in his life, so his worshipers did the same thing. What we need to understand, this is true for America. No God equals no justice. It's the bottom line. No God equals no justice. There is no theory that can compensate for the absence of the one true God. And so he keeps going. Let's keep reading. Uh, we're still talking procedure here. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Again, due process here is being articulated. You can't, just, you can't let somebody come in and whisper. You have to establish it. It's got to be proven. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, which, by the way, uh, would stop some people. It might encourage a few others. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. So, again, God is concerned with outcomes, but he's also concerned with just procedures. Like, don't, don't forget that. Outcomes aren't the only thing that matter. In fact, without just procedures, you cannot be guaranteed that you'll have just outcomes. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. So he's talking about the tabernacle and later the temple. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who's in office at that time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. So he's just envisioning a time when a case is more difficult than the local elders can manage. He says, take it to the Levites. By the way, just a comment on the Levites. So you'll remember there were 12 tribes in Israel each tribe received a land inheritance except for the Levites. They didn't get land. Why? Because they were supposed to scatter through all the land and be teachers of the law. And if they have that many teachers of the law, God thinks, there might be a little justice in the land. So Levites were scattered all over the land. I do want to say this. Imagine having one preacher for every 12 people. Because that's what they had. The number we often hear is you need one preacher for every 100 people in church. I don't, it's a number that's tossed around a lot. In Israel, they had one preacher for every 12 people. And so he makes provision for the Levites. Go to the Levitical priests, inquire of them. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. Anyone who shows contempt for the judge or the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God is to be put to death. You must purge the, Israel for, uh, the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. Here's what he's saying. We have all these Levites so they can teach the word of God because the concept of justice must be grounded in the truth of God. That's why he had so many Levites. 
And I just want to remind you again today, because we'll talk in just a minute, very quickly, we'll talk about some theories of justice, maybe some biblical principles. And I just want to make sure we all get it. Real justice starts with the real God. Minus the real God, no theory can compensate the absence of God. And so what does he say in Isaiah 66 and verse 5? This is the one he says, I will honor. Those who tremble at my word, people who respect the word of God. Now, God considers Israel appointing a king. He seems to be ambivalent about this. At times, God shakes his head that the Israelites would want a king as though he's not enough. And at other times, God seems to bless it. So he blesses David and sets up a a kingdom based on David's kingship. But envisioning this way back in Moses' time, God has some provisions for the king. By the way, it's really startling to hear what God has in an age where everybody was a despot. You know, everybody was a, they were all warlords. And God says, you're not going to have a warlord. I'm not going to have a warlord leading you. So here's what he says about kings. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let's set a king over us like the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make his people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It's to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord as God and follow carefully all the words of this law, these decrees. And not, watch this, not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. So just a word here about politics. There are two traditions, by the way, in the Christian history about politics. There's the Augustinian tradition, which says you just have to hold your nose. We just have to accept politics. It stinks. It's awful, but we got to have it. Then you have the Thomistic tradition, Thomas Aquinas, who says, no, 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 no. Government's a beautiful thing. It's the, it, government's the first thing humans would do any, naturally anytime you drop them anywhere. That's what humans do. It can become a very beautiful thing. So I'm not real sure where you land on that spectrum, but I want to say this. North Boulevard has, I think, an, uh, an unusual number of people involved in government work and politics uh, as stewards of, uh, of, of our government. And I've, I've never been disappointed in our people. I think we have some fantastic people who work for the state, who work for the government. And um, I just want to remind you, those of you who either work in government offices or who, who hold a, a position, an elected position, and I'm not reminding this because I think there's a problem here. I just need to remind you because this is what my job is. When you get to your place of work, don't forget that you follow Jesus. Like, you don't, don't leave your Christianity at the door. Be a Christian everywhere you go. And if the world doesn't want you as a Christian, that's their problem. So, again, I don't want to say this as though we have a problem with this. Oh, my goodness, I've been delighted to vote for our people. But I just want to make sure that this is the lesson of this text is don't start thinking you're too good because you're not. Remember who is God. Always remember who is God. Y'all know that in this Tennessee state constitution, it's illegal to hold a public office if you're an atheist. It's still in our constitution. You know why? 
Because the theory is someone who doesn't realize that they're going to stand in front of a judge one day shouldn't be judging anybody else. How about that? Let's keep reading. Chapter 18, we're going to finish in just a few verses. The Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance in Israel. Again, they're supposed to be scattered out so they can teach. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among the fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. This is the share due the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep. So, so, so this is what you paid the Levites. This, this was their salary. They got the shoulder of the animal, the internal organs. Man, I'm glad we changed the way we do this. And the meat from the head. Uh, you're also to give them the first fruits of your grain, wine, olive oil, the first wool that comes from shearing your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. And if a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he's living and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, he may minister in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who serve there in the presence of the Lord. He's to share equally in the benefits even though he's received money from the sale of family possessions. So all he's saying is take care of your ministers. And by the way, I would be amiss if I didn't take this moment just to say that North Boulevard has about 25 years of association, always been generous and kind and fair to ministers. And I'm, I can't think of a better church to work for. And I, I sincerely mean that. I want you to hear that pretty regularly from us, that this is an awesome church who treats its people awesome. A long tradition of that here. And that what God says is, if a Levite decides to sell his stuff and go to the temple, he gets to keep the stuff he sold. He gets to keep the proceeds from him. Now, there's our text. And so we'll let um, the fool rush in now, because I want to give you a few principles that I think um, I can find in Scripture that will help us learn to think Christianly about Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, how to love justice. Let's start here. Recognize the importance of justice. So again, I said early on, I don't remember hearing a whole lot of talk about justice when I was growing up. I do think that some of that was probably connected to the fact that I was always on the winning side of justice. I didn't have to think about it. The only time I thought about it was when someone was unfair to me, and then I got what? Enraged. And I'll make sure everybody knows this. If you want to enrage people, treat them unjustly. That's how you make, that's how you enrage people. It's a natural reaction to injustice. So if justice is giving everyone their due, I want to make sure we understand justice is similar to, let's call it the fabric of the universe for a moment. Imagine the universe as a large net. Now what happens in a net if somebody over here jumps up and down? What happens? Somebody down here feels it. In that sense, the entire universe is connected. God hardwired the universe for justice. So any act of injustice anywhere in the world creates a debt somewhere on the other side of the world. That's a good way to think of it. Every act of injustice creates a debt that somebody has to pay. Every act has to be born or paid by somebody. So in 1963, an Atlanta minister, Martin Luther King, traveled to Birmingham to help, to help ordinary people get the right to sit at a restaurant. And he was arrested. A number of, this uh, Martin Luther King, if I haven't said that yet, a number of white ministers in Birmingham were sympathetic to Dr. King. But they wrote a letter, an open letter, in which they said, look, 
Dr. King's got the right priorities, but this is the wrong thing to do. Don't stir the crowd. Just let it work through the court system. Just, just slow down a little bit. And, and one of the finest pieces of uh, legal literature ever written, Dr. King, by the way, he has to write his response on a newspaper because he didn't have paper in the uh, uh, jail cell, only until later. He writes his letter from the Birmingham jail in which he says, well, he creates all sorts of profound statements, but one of them is, no law that's unjust is a moral law. But I want you to hear something else he says. He says, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I want to underscore this because one reason why America right now is having so many problems is because a single act of injustice affects all of us. It's all of our business that everybody gets treated with justice. It's all of our business. And it's certainly the business of the church to talk about it, even if it's only a jackleg preacher doing it. It's certainly our business to talk about it. That we have to model justice. We have to say to the world, you know, there's something more important than me staying on top. And that is that everybody gets justice. We just need to underscore it. Let me say second. We need to honor that which is holy. I just want to say this. I have to do this quickly. The only reason anyone deserves just treatment is because he or she is created in the image of God. And if we deny the image of God, all you have are chemicals in motion. There is no such thing as justice for chemicals. That is, it's the holiness of God that gives us our rationale for justice. So don't deny holiness, a concept that has certainly fallen on hard times in North America. Now, I'm going to give you a real quick, what I consider to be something of a biblical definition of justice, but I do want to say this is incomplete, and I don't know that I'm qualified to do a lot more than this. Let me say this. First of all, the, uh, the biblical principle of justice is concerned both with the procedure and the outcome. Both matter, the procedure and the outcome. So we have a procedure statement here, which is you check your weights before you use them. Don't use different weights depending on who shows up. Like you can't have one gallon for people with blonde hair at the gas station and a different kind of gallon for people with dark hair. You just can't do that. You're supposed to decide blindly what a gallon is before they ever show up. I want you to see some of the things that mess with justice in the, in the Bible. Malicious witnesses. These are people who aren't being honest, who have a, a bone to pick. Following the crowd, just doing whatever the mob says. Siding with the crowd. Showing favoritism. And notes this, showing favoritism to the poor is mentioned in this text. In fact, twice the Old Testament says, don't show partiality to the poor. Now, that's a little bit against what we would expect. Most of us would expect the Bible to be saying, no, I want you to show favoritism to the poor. I'm going to come back to that. I just want you to see that the procedure, the methodology of justice in the Bible is supposed to be blind. The justice of the scriptures methodologically is supposed to be impartial. But it always bends towards goodness. And I'll, let me, so let me underscore this. The method is impartial. The result is supposed to be good. Now, this is actually different from what some of us think. Many of us don't realize that justice is supposed to produce a good outcome. I think I used to flirt with libertarianism. Libertarianism is kind of the belief that the government is there to give me a police force, protect me from the Russians or whoever it is that might be attacking me, and then leave me alone. 
right? I just want a government that leaves me alone. That's a libertarian position. I just want you to know that's not biblical. It doesn't work. Just leaving us alone is not going to produce good. In fact, it produces chaos. Uh, it's, it's, it's natives on an island who have in the middle of a riot. And so what God is teaching is, yes, your methods are to be impartial, but your results are supposed to be good. This is taught all through the scriptures. That justice is supposed to bend towards doing that which is good. Now, while I'm on the subject, I'm not sure that this one is a win for us, but I'm going to throw it out there. It, well, it's a win, but I'm not sure it's a win for me. I want to say this, non-biblical definitions of justice do not create full justice. They just don't. God defines justice. At the end of the day, if it's not God's definition of justice, it can't withhold. By the way, we can learn a lot from all sorts of theories of justice. We, we can, we should. I'm glad we have people who do. But just remind yourself at the end of the day, what the book of Deuteronomy, what the New Testament, what the Old Testament are teaching us is this, God decides what is just. So I want to say, as America flirts with Marxism, I just want to say, guys, Marxism may well have identified legitimate injustices in America, but it will not give us a just solution. 20th century is filled with people who thought Marxism would save them only to end up by the millions murdered by their Marxist governments. Marxism is a materialist ideology. That is, it was designed by an atheist, an avowed atheist, Karl Marx, for other atheists. It's built on atheism. It's built on class warfare. So individuals aren't measured by the merits of their character. They're measured instead by what group they belong to, which is a deadly way to measure people at the end of the day. It is and always has been authoritarian, Marxism is. That is, some people get way too much power in these systems. It also has never worked. It's never lifted a country out of poverty, but it has sent many countries into poverty. Well, I'm just making the suggestion that what we want is a good biblical definition. And let me say this too. I'd be suspicious of pagan solutions to acts of injustice. Injustice is all around us. But let the Bible give us good answers. Let me give you just one illustration. If I could give you, this is a serious question. If I could give you a silver bullet that would, that would reduce so greatly, so drastically, you would be shocked. A silver bullet that would reduce crime, Reduce the incarceration rates maybe by 50, 60, 70%. Would reduce teen suicides by 70%. Teen pregnancies by 60%. That would lift four-fifths of all impoverished children out of poverty. I'm not making this up. If I could give you one thing, one silver bullet, that would remove most kids from gangs... Would you take it if I could give you one silver bullet? You see, we keep treating the symptoms of the disease. The disease is hedonism. The disease is fatherless children. It's when fathers sire children and then abandon them. Everything I just mentioned would change overnight if men committed to the women they got pregnant and then loved the children who were born. And if the church isn't preaching that message, nobody else will. 
Like we have to be the ones who stand up and say, look, throw all the money you want to at poverty. Throw, all, throw trillions of dollars at it. But you know it's not going to get fixed until there's a moral reform in the hearts of men. That's the real injustice. The greatest injustice is the belief that I can abandon my children. And that's okay in America. I'm just suggesting, let's use biblical solutions. Now let me get to this one. So I just want to speak to everybody, but especially to those of us who are white for just a second. So the United States of America was founded by white descendants of Europeans in order to benefit white descendants of Europeans. That's not rocket science. The Tanzanian government was arranged by Tanzanians for the purpose of helping Tanzanians. The Chinese government was set up by Chinese for the purpose of helping Chinese. It's not rocket science. It's not all that complex. It's not controversial. It's not controversial to say that the U.S. government was set up to help white descendants of Europeans. That's not controversial. Like it doesn't have to scare us to say that. And it shouldn't bother us to say, and you know what? For hundreds of years, blacks in America were treated as three-fifths of a person. And we cannot possibly be okay with that. And we also cannot, we cannot be okay stealing for 500 years, looting the cultural treasures of an entire race building our whole lives on it, and then one day saying, okay, we'll stop now, let's call it even. It just can't possibly be justice. There's no way we can think that's just. And if Christians can't say those things, if we're afraid that, if we're afraid of what social media will say, we're losing our friends, or we're afraid, you know, next thing if I do this, we'll be a Marxist nation, don't just speak the truth. We can speak the truth about this. That we do need reforms. We have to rethink what's happening. So many people have been hurt. Make people mad. Treat them unjustly. I'm just suggesting. It shouldn't be controversial to say that there's been systemic injustice. That's not controversial. And so maybe it becomes us who are white Christians to be the ones to say, that's true. And I want to do something about it. Let me say this. i got to keep going. Um, yeah, that's one of your blanks. We also don't want to deny personal responsibility. So it's not fair to say that everything that happens is just the consequence of some system. So we have five judges. Those judges who have at times worked with a small claims court could tell you that you know what you hear in small claims court 300 times a day? It's not my fault. That's what you hear 300 times a day, every day in small claims court. It's people saying, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. It's his fault, it's his fault. You know, at some point we need to acknowledge that some of the suffering that I am enduring is a result of my stupid choices. The, both principles can be true. It's not either or. We're Christians. We just speak the truth. We don't have to worry about what CNN says or what Fox News says. I don't care what they say. I'm following Jesus here. We just want to speak the truth about these things. Let me also say this. Uh, let's keep moving. Yeah. Pay special attention now. Now I want to come back to this. When the Bible shows interest to four categories, which it does, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, its concern is that these are the least likely to get justice. 
These are the least likely to get justice. And by the way, minorities in America aren't foreigners, but they're often treated as foreigners. They're often treated as foreigners, which means, again, the majority culture in America needs to pay special attention to minority cultures. We need to be asking, are, are we sure they're getting justice? Because I got the money to get justice. Do they? I have the social capital to get justice, but do they? And so the Bible shows a special concern for those individuals. So even though it says don't be partial to someone who's poor, it does teach us to pay attention to them, listen to their needs, intervene for them. And um, I actually want to get to a few of those verses. I'm going to skip down here, I think, if I can make it work. So justice, I'm going to keep moving. The Bible teaches us both justice and righteousness. Justice is fair, it's blind, righteousness is good. And here's what I want you to see. In spite of the fact that the process is to be blind, we are to be good. That is, we're to be looking out for the good of others. So we have texts like this, learn to do what's right, seek justice, which means what? Defending those who are oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Just as God defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, he loves the foreigner residing among you. Give them food and clothing. What's being said in all these texts is that, yes, justice is blind, the process of justice, the procedure of justice, it's blind, it's fair. But at the end of the day, we are to be good to one another. We don't just give somebody what they're due. We go beyond that. We want to be good to people, especially people. For whom the system hasn't worked very well. So again, it's, this, this sermon's not just about race, but guys, I just want to say this again, please, to, to our white members. You don't have to think about race every day. So occasionally a white will say to me, and by the way, those of you who are African-American, don't take this the wrong way. They don't mean it ugly. But they're like, well, I just don't think about race. It seems like, you know, blacks think about race all the time. And what I say back is, yeah, they have to think about race all the time. The fact that you don't have to think about it tells me something. We whites, we need to listen to our brothers. We need to hear what they're saying. They're not making this stuff up. This is what justice looks like when it's bent towards the good. And if you're African-American, you, you don't even hear that from Christians, from your own church. It's got to hurt. Don't they see where I am? Don't they see me? Well, this is who we are. We're the people of God. The people of God pursue justice. And we do it with goodness. So we all know this uh, story of a Daniel Boone, right? He cleared out the Cumberland Gap for the white settlers who came across and filled Kentucky and the Ohio Valley and parts of Tennessee. When Boone became an old man, he moved to Missouri. In fact, there's Booneville, Missouri, named after him. And he became a judge in his last few years. He was in his 70s. He died, I think he was 82. I don't remember how old he was. 82, 83. He was a judge in a small town not too far from St. Louis. And uh, on one occasion, so Boone, by the way, I don't know that he was a Christian. He, he had his kids baptized, but he famously said he didn't bother with church. But he had inculcated some Christian values. That's obvious from the story I'm about to tell you. As a case comes before him, it's a poor widow. She has nothing but a cow. She owes some wealthy man in the village. She owes this guy some money and she can't pay. So the guy sues her in front of Daniel Boone to take her cow. And Boone, you know, he's seen everything. 
And he looks at the, the, the wealthy guy and says, look, you got all you need. You really want to take a widow's only cow? You got to take this? And this wealthy guy, like he was staunch. He, he demanded justice. So what's Boone going to do? Like we, we need justice. We need justice. We also need goodness. So Boone says, all right, fine. By the way, I w- this is one moment I would love to have seen. He says, all right, fine. Give him the cow. He looks at that wealthy man and he says, but don't you ever look an honest man in the eyes again. And then he turned to the widow and he says, this afternoon, I'm bringing you one of my cows. Isn't that a perfect model of what it looks like when we follow a God who's both just and good? That's at least what he's calling forth from us. What is it that the Lord requires of you but to love mercy and justice and to walk humbly with your God? Hey, we'll pray for you if you need it. Go online, the button will click right there, take you to somebody who will pray with you, or go to the back. Let's stand up and sing, hey, guys, let's commit ourselves. We're going to be the people of God. Just stand up.